Okay, we're live. How are you? This is the John Riley Project. Welcome and thanks for joining us. It's um, episode number 172 and it's October, friends, October 5th. And we're getting in the really into the heat and, and the heaviness of the whole political, you know, election and everything else. And today I kind of want to take a little bit of a detour off of that. I mean, we're going to touch you know quite a bit on some of the topics that are being discussed, you know, in the political context. But what I want to do is really break down this article that I read recently that was really interesting. And it was about the Pope and the Pope's comments on capitalism. And boy, I read the article it was in AP News. It's titled The Market Capitalism Has Failed in the Pandemic and Needs Reform. And I thought, wow, this sounds like a pretty interesting article to go through and kind of break it down. And I, I went through the article. It was unbelievable. So I want to shake out this this topic with you. We're going to talk a little bit about religion. We're going to talk about capitalism. We're going to talk about socialism and, you know, a bunch of other topics. So I welcome your participation in the discussion. Um, you can type your comments in, you know, we're live streaming. So you can comment on Facebook or on YouTube, and I'll be happy to read your comments on the air and we'll have some fun with this. Um, but before I really get into it, I want to just touch on a few uh, small items up front. Um, first of all, um, you know, for those of you that are here in the San Diego County area, particularly in Poway, um, I went down to this past weekend to go check out the Poway protesters. I've commented on them frequently on this podcast. And, you know, the previous weekend, there was violence, there was smoke bombs, there were police shutting down the road. And I wasn't sure what we were going to see this past weekend. Uh, but I went there and everyone was doing really well. And there was a lot of enthusiasm and and uh, people were well behaved on what little bit I was able to observe I actually parked my car and walked around down there um, the anti-trump side definitely seemed to be a lot smaller so I don't know if it's because the BLM people decided to not show up or maybe some of them just said you know screw this <laughs> you know because there was violence you know the previous weekend and then the Trump people have taken over three of the four street corners so I was surprised there was no police presence because I thought they would try to make a statement. But in the end, it all looked pretty good to me. Like I said, I was I actually parked my car out there by the old pancake factory. I was walking around and um, it was good to see that. So that's a that's a big positive. Another huge positive. How about the San Diego Padres? Man, they uh, they beat the Cardinals in a, a best out of three series. And they're going to have a five game series opening up tomorrow with the L.A. Dodgers. So I am extremely excited about that. Um, you you know, we've had David Leland here on the podcast commenting about the Padres. So really rooting for those guys. I mean, they've got some pitching problems. We don't know you know, if Clevenger or Lamette are going to pitch, but man, they've got a lot of good mojo going for them. So I'm really excited about that. And then, of course, um, you know, you can't help but you know, the one piece of news you can't avoid is Trump and COVID. And I guess... Um, you know, he's I think, is he getting ready to leave the hospital now? Yesterday, he came out of the hospital, had like a parade in front of the his well-wishers in front of the hospital and then went back in. And people were saying that was irresponsible and everything else. But it is interesting to follow this. Now, Trump says he's a lot more educated on covid. So it, it'll be interesting to see how his rhetoric changes because he definitely politicized the whole COVID uh, pandemic. There's no doubt about that. So um, very curious, but just sometimes you hear people make interesting comments. Like people are upset that President Trump was able to go into the hospital out of an abundance of caution. You know, they think everyone should be able to go to the hospital out of an abundance of caution. Well, 
if everyone went to the hospital out of an abundance of caution, that's why healthcare is so darn expensive. We got to figure out ways so people don't go to the hospital in the first place. Um, but um, yeah, it's the president of the United States. I mean, whether you pro-Trump, anti-Trump, the president of the United States is going to get excellent health care because it's in the nation's interest to keep him healthy um, to the best of their ability. So interesting. You know, Michael Smirkanish on CNN had some interesting comments and he was comparing where we are today versus the same snapshot in time in 2016. And in that in the in that same weekend, you know, the one we just experienced that same weekend in 2016 is when there was evidence that Russia was interfering in the election. And then there was the whole Trump access Hollywood, Billy Bush, you know, all of that, you know, so-called locker room talk from from Trump, which everyone thought would sink him for sure, but it didn't. And then a bunch of WikiLeaks leaked a bunch of Hillary emails and it all was that past weekend. So, you know, as crazy and crazy as this thing it gets, you know, now with COVID and Trump's got COVID and everything else and the crazy debates, I, there's going to be more nonsense coming in the next four weeks. You can count on it. And that's what's going to make this time really interesting. So um, at any rate, um, let's get into this article. And the this is an AP News, and, and I'll share the link. And the title of the article is um, Pope, colon, uh, market capitalism has failed in pandemic, need, needs reform. And Pope Francis says the coronavirus pandemic has proven that, quote unquote, magic theories of market capitalism have failed, that the world needs a new type of politics that promotes dialogue and solidarity and rejects war at all costs. And, oh, man, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. And so, um, you know, it, it is kind of funny uh, when you hear a religious leader, particularly the Pope, comment about magic theories, <laughs> you know. So, you know, whether or not, you you know, you're religious or you're not religious, I mean, religion is based on faith. Uh, religion talks about miracles, um, you know, where, you know, the, the ultimate miracle of Christianity is that Christ was risen from the dead, um, you know, cured Lazarus, arose Lazarus from the dead, cured people that had um, um, all kinds of diseases, um, including leprosy. And it's interesting that the Pope then condemns magical theories, you know, where a lot of these miracles are really like magic. So it, it's just funny, just like a lot of the crisscross on how this is all set up. Um, but yeah, the world needs a new type of politics that promotes dialogue, which is very true, um, and solidarity. And solidarity, you know, is that's kind of a word that speaks to, you know, um, comrades and socialism and that sort of thing, um, and rejects war at all costs. And I couldn't agree there more. I mean, war has been dramatically expanded and you know but it, again it is interesting that the pope is commenting about war where a lot of his predecessors were very pro-war not just pope john paul ii the second in reagan's era but obviously going back in history you know in when the the papacy and um the, the battles that their army fought um throughout europe so it's interesting you know so pope francis is argentinian um, which is makes him a very different kind of pope. Uh, but it's interesting to hear these comments. Um, but yeah, he's Argentinian. So you think of like Perón, you know, Juan Perón. And a lot of, you know, what little bit I know about Juan Perón is it's kind of similar to Bernie Sanders, where it's sort of this um, uh, labor movement 
this solidarity, this populism surrounding labor is a lot of what Perón is about. And really, you see some of that coming out in the in Pope Francis's comments. But what, the funny thing about this whole thing, and again, by the way, I encourage your comments on this. I'm going to be kind of a little bit all over the place here. And we're talking about religion and eco- economics and capitalism. And and there's bound to be some controversy here. But by all means, share your comments and questions, and I'll invite you in the discussion. Um, but it is interesting is when the Pope is coming out now and he's condemning capitalism. He's saying capitalism isn't working. And, and then all of the hardcore leftists are coming out and they're saying, see, see, the Pope is condemning capitalism. And then you're thinking, well, wait a minute, the, our, our friends on the left are usually the ones that want to keep religion um, clearly separated. You know, they want to have separation of church and state. They don't want religion influencing politics. And the, here now the leftists are pointing to a religious leader to really be the spokesperson on what's wrong with our po- politics and what's wrong with our economy. Um, so it's funny how that works. And then it puts a lot of the right wing folks that are very pro-religious and so-called pro-capitalism, which I'm going to get into, um, where they have to difficulty defending the Pope and then also defending capitalism. And so it's funny how when the Pope comes out as very anti-capitalist, the leftists jump all over it and it becomes an interesting kind of crisscross kind of a story. Um, But the one thing that I think I learned this not too long ago, and it was a mind-blowing uh, a mind-blowing concept, because you know, I was brought up in a religious background, and I'm going to share some of that. But um, someone said to me that socialism is secularized Christianity. And I thought about it, and at first I rejected the idea. I mean, how could um, socialism, which is backed by force, in at, at, at any way be related to Christianity. But the more it was explained to me, the more it made sense uh, because, um, you know, Christianity is all about sacrifice and, you know, being your brother's keeper. And frankly, that's what socialism is all about. It's about sacrificing yourself for the benefit of the group, um, putting your needs last and the group needs first. And really Christianity is largely built on that. I mean, in fact, Jesus Christ, um, you know, sacrificed his own life to save man from original sin. The ultimate form of sacrifice, the ultimate symbol of Christianity is Christ on the cross. Um, so when you hear that socialism and Christianity are similar in many ways, it starts to suddenly things started to click for me. And I began to understand it more where, um, you know, when you go through all of, um, you know, the notion of being your brother's keeper, even a lot of the Beatitudes, you know, where, um, you, you know, blessed are the poor. And a lot of those messages are very much aligned with with socialism. And in fact, I've often now learned is that Christianity and socialism in a lot of ways share the same moral code in a lot of ways. Um, the the, the what. What's funny, though, is that, you know, obviously Christianity has existed for 2000 years and and a lot of that same moral code has existed for much longer across many other religions. But um, that 
that that moral code, that that way of looking at society where your needs come last and the needs of the group come first is something that has existed for thousands and thousands of years. And socialism is very much aligned with that. And I think that's why a lot of socialists are able to take a moral high ground and feel very good about it, because in many ways it's consistent with the religious teachings that have been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that often is one of the primary you know, conflicts it has with capitalism, because capitalism is all about individualism. It's about individual rights. It's about Capitalism is about private property and free markets. Capitalism is about self-interest, where socialism and Christianity are often about selflessness rather than self-interest. So it it was just a mind-blowing concept. And so when I'm going through a lot of these comments from Pope Francis, and we're going to get into the article here in a bit, it all really makes sense to me when I hear this. Um, So Steve Dow chimes in on the podcast. He says, the Acts of the Apostles, um, was it book, t- uh, chapter 2, verses 40 through 4 through 45, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. That's a great example, an excellent example, Steve. Thank you for sharing that. It, that's, that's definitely a socialist message, and it's a core part of Christianity. There's the, it's, they share the same moral code in a lot of ways, um, which, which is funny also because socialists tend to be very anti-religion, especially anti-Christian. And, and again, there's, I think there's a lot of conflicts there because oftentimes Christians don't really practice Christianity so-called capitalists don't practice real capitalism, and we'll kind of break that down. But I want to give you, before I go really deep into the article, I just want to give you a little bit of my background, just so you can understand my own perspective. So, you know, I um, I come from an Irish Catholic background. And so, you know, in fact, I, I was doing my history, uh, uh, family history using um, Ancestry.com and and I did the DNA test and i had always heard stories that my family was from um, County Cork in Ireland. And I got my results back. I was hoping to see if my family history story was different than what the science told me. And sure enough, my DNA results, 100% Irish and all from County Cork or Munsters, you know, down there in Southern Ireland. So I'm looking forward to going someday. Um, but I was brought up Irish Catholic and, you know, my family, you know, really was in San Francisco back in the day when San Francisco was largely divided into ethnic neighborhoods. And so my family was in what what they called it Eureka Valley and which is now really the Castro district. And so my family actually owned a home um, on Liberty and Castro back in the day. And so uh, very much brought up in an Irish Catholic community. And then, you know, my father um, w- was killed when my mom was pregnant with me. And so when I went, got to the level of the first grade, you know, my, my mom was raising me as a single mom and we didn't have much money at all, but I was able to use some of the social security benefits from my father's passing and use that to help fund my ability to go to a Catholic school. And so I went to um, Our Lady of Angels in Burlingame and, and um, 
and that was consistent with what a lot of my cousins and aunts and uncles had all gone to Catholic schools up in San Francisco. My aunt went to Mercy High School in Burlingame. So it was very consistent with the way I was brought up. And then, you know, I went through parochial school, first to eighth grade, and I was an altar boy and, uh, you know, the whole thing. And so it was just a really big part of my upbringing. And then my, my mother ended up, when I was in the fourth grade, my mom remarried and uh, married to uh, a gentleman who he sent, he just recently passed away um, actually a month and a half ago. And he is Polish, but a Polish Catholic and his family lived in Utah. And so I would sometimes go back and visit my stepfather's parents in Utah. And my, I guess you call her my step grandmother was probably the most hardcore Catholic church lady of all time. But she lived in Utah where, you know, everyone with rare exception is Mormon. And so um, when I would go back and visit, when we went to church every day, and then she was the woman in the back in the vestibule selling all the, the church artifacts, and I'd have to help her sell those things. And, and then, you know, I also became an altar boy during the summer when I was there in Utah. So the, this whole, you know, Catholicism and the Pope, just a big, big part of my upbringing, because it was all I ever knew. It was just expected. It was part of my family. I go to my aunts and uncles and cousins' houses, and, you know, you'd see a picture on the wall, and, you know, it would be a picture of Jesus, and there'd be crucifixes throughout the house, especially on Palm Sunday, and the palms were, like, put um, onto the crucifixes. You know, other family members would have the president of the United States and the Pope side by side. So really saw a lot of this as I grew up. But, you know, as I got older, um, I began to have a lot of misgivings and there were conflicts that I recognized in the church. And, you know, it was things like, you know, why are priests only men? Why can't women be priests? And and then you learn about some of history and, you know, the popes back in the day, you know, were we're prosecuting scientists, prosecuting Galileo, who said, you know, that the earth rotates around the sun. Um, you know, so you see a lot of this in history. And it made me question, why, why am I part of this religion that is so inconsistent with science? And then um, and then you learn about, you know, papal wars and and um, uh, the Crusades and all of these wars in the name of religion. And then the Spanish Inquisition and and then the whole um, the whole right to choose movement, which, you know, the abortion issue became, was really one of my seminal political moments when I was in college. But I was in high school. I was just, you know, kind of going along with the program, but still questioning it. And I got to college and I started to really question it. And then I got to the point now, I mean, now I'm in my mid fifties and I really, you know, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself Catholic any longer. I'm just sort of agnostic and in some cases a little bit atheist. Um, I'm basically kind of confused. I don't really know the facts. I haven't seen the evidence. Um, but still, I've been surrounded by so much Christianity, specifically Catholicism, in my upbringing that, um, you know, when I see an article about the Pope, it catches my interest. So, um, and, and then even I, I like to watch, um, you know, I tell you, I like to watch a lot of, uh, of period pieces, historical pieces. And I love the, um, uh, what was on Netflix? It was Borgia. You ever seen that? And there's actually two versions. There's an American version and a British version, but it's about, I think it was at Pope, 
was it Pope Leo, I think, uh, but he was Borgia. That was his actual name. Um, that was just a great series. I just loved it. And, and even then, you, you know, there was just a tremendous amount of things that the, the Pope did and the church practice that were completely against the teachings of Christ in so many ways. So there's just so many conflicts, so much, um, you know, so many things it's hard to reconcile. And I, I've been challenged with that the whole time. But but I get to this situation where the Pope is, um, you know, commenting about all these things. And, and it's it's just really interesting. So, you know, some of his comments were about war. And in those cases, I'm largely in agreement. When you get to capitalism was where I differ. But in the article, he, he says, Pope Francis says, it's very difficult nowadays to invoke the rational criteria elaborated in earlier centuries to speak of the possibility of a, quote, just war, quote. And, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the whole concept of a just war is kind of like what fueled the Crusades. You know, it's it's kind of like what fueled, frankly, a lot of this um, war on terror in some cases. Um, wars as a matter of defense make a lot of sense, but wars as a matter of offense and then typically justifying it in the name of God, you know, very questionable. And But it's nice in this case to see the Pope condemning that. Now, again, back in the 80s and Pope John Paul II, that he was very much aligned with Thatcher and Reagan and fighting the Cold War and very politically involved and in some cases very pro-war. So it's again, it's funny, you know, where Christ talks about turning the other cheek. Um, Christ talks about forgiveness. Um, but in in some of these cases, we see the church, um, you know, pursuing war, pursuing aggression. So when Pope Francis condemns the concept of just war, I'm thinking right on. Um, but then he gets to the concept of capitalism. And from the article he says a few things. Um, he says, aside from the differing ways that various countries responded to the COVID crisis, their inability to work together became evident. And I think that's very true. I think different countries had different approaches. Um, they had different political motivations. Um, in some cases, that's good that there's differences because nations like Sweden could pursue a different strategy. And then we get to learn if that strategy was better or worse than other strategies. But then there were other nations like the United States that refused to work with other nations just because of Trump's ego. And, you know, cases where the United States was presented with testing kits um, from the World Health Organization and Trump rejected them because he wanted to have American made ones. Um, which is just nuts. So there's absolutely, he's right there. There could have been a lot more uh, coordination, I think amongst the nations, but he, the Pope goes on to say that his criticism of the perverse, he called it in quotes, the perverse global economic system, which he said consistently keeps the poor on the margins while enriching the few. And that, that's just a really interesting comment because um, capitalism, you know, people characterize the current um, ec economic system we have today in America as capitalism. It's not capitalism. We don't have capitalism in America. Um, we have a mixed economy. Uh, it's an economy that blends parts of capitalism, parts of socialism, parts of um, uh, some versions of fascism, uh, other other forms of collectivism 
all blended together. There, there's no such thing um, as a perfectly capitalistic system. And you go around the, around the world and every nation is a mixed economy of some sort, you know, varying ratios of different kinds of economic systems. But capitalism is really about, is about first of all, it's about private property. And it's about free markets. I mean, if you look up the definition of capitalism, that's what it's about. It's about private interests, private property, pursuing profits. Um, and it's typically within the context of a free market where buyers and sellers can freely negotiate, can freely trade without interference from government or other coercive forces, but typically government. But what we have now is not capitalism because, I mean, look at COVID as an example. There's been massive bailouts of large corporations. Um, that's not private property. That's public property. Um, there has been cases in, in COVID where small businesses have been shut down while large businesses like the big box stores like Home Depot and Walmart and Amazon and Costco have remained open, not only remained open, they've been declared essential businesses. And these other businesses are non-essential. And so the system, as we have today, shuts down non-essential businesses and props up the essential businesses. That's not free market. And therefore, it's not capitalism. And we can go through a lot of other cases. I mean, look at the healthcare system in America. Um, people will will say, well, it's not a socialist system. It's not single payer. And that's true. It's not single payer. But it is a blend of socialism and capitalism and a whole lot of cronyism. I mean, because if you look at our healthcare system now, um, you know, seniors are all on Medicare. Um, you know, all the military veterans are on the VA healthcare system. And then all the poor are on Medicaid and here in California, Medi-Cal. Um, so a huge percentage of the population, maybe as much as half are already on a government socialized medicine insurance system. Um, and so people will often blame, well, the entire system is capitalist when it's not. Now the portions that are not managed by government insurance um, are in what people think is a free market. But in fact, it's an extraordinarily regulated market, not just because of Obamacare, but it's been layers upon layers of regulations on that marketplace, forms of insurance that are declared illegal, um, total distortion of pricing. That's why people, if you want to go pay cash uh, for pricing, it, you, it, it make, they're ridiculous prices. I, I don't know, I'm going to make something up like $20 for a, an aspirin pill. We've seen those kinds of, of comments about the healthcare system and they blame it on capitalism, but it's because the insurance industry is so tightly woven into the system and the insurance system is so heavily regulated by government that it creates all these distortions. A lot like what I talked about in the last podcast episode, like the the guy that's at the restaurant that makes those balloon animals that they take the long skinny balloons and turn them into dogs and horses. And when you squeeze on one end, it creates expansion and distortion on the other end. And so that's a lot of what we have in our system. But still people complain that it's capitalism that's the problem and that capitalism has failed. But that's not capitalism. And this isn't, you know, the whole notion that the, the no true Scotsman fallacy. That's not what I'm talking about here either. I mean, because 
it's this is like apples and oranges. It's not some moderate degree of difference. This is a significant core fundamental difference. What we have now, capitalism is about free markets and it's about um, about private property. And so much of our system violates those very tenants. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's also interesting. You get into the, the idea of inequality and um, the Pope commented on this. He said, there is little appreciation of the fact of the alleged spillover. Actually, I'm a little ahead of myself because he's talking about um, trickle down, which I want to get to. Let me go there first and then we'll get to the idea of inequality, which and I want to weave in the Pope's comments on this. So the Pope went on to condemn trickle down economics. And boy, th- this is obviously a hot topic. Um, you know, people love to say that trickle down has failed. That it is a failed argument. And we can look at the data and wealth inequality has expanded since President Reagan, who first put forth the trickle down um, and you know, him and, and Laffer, which is just a very unfortunate name for an economist uh, putting forward an economic theory for Reagan. But um, Reagan and Laffer putting forward this trickle down theory. And by the way, they, I don't think they ever called it trickle down. I, th- I think that was a name that was pinned on it from the left, if I recall. Um, but what's interesting is, is the Pope commented on it and he said, Uh, Francis also rejected the trickle-down economic theory, as he did in his first major mission statement. And actually, this is all part of, I think, the the Pope does a lot of these these writings that are kind of his teachings. Uh, So that was part of what uh, he was commenting on. And, you know, he rejects trickle-down. But think of it. Remember, he's from Argentina. He is, I guess you could call him a Peronist. Uh, you know, a a follower of Juan Perón in Argentina. And they, remember I said, that society was very much like uh, uh, resembling what Bernie Sanders is all about, about uh, a movement for labor, um, a movement for, um, you know, a populist movement for labor, a suppression of individual rights in favor of the group, in favor of the workers. And so, when he comes out and condemns trickle down, to me, that's very consistent with with um, Bernie Sanders. And it's also consistent with the fact that socialism is a secularized version of Christianity. Socialism is like Christianity, but without the mysticism. It's without the um, the leaps of faith. The core moral underpinnings of Christianity are very, very, very aligned with socialism. So when he condemns trickle down, you're thinking, okay, well, this is starting to make sense to me when I hear this. It's consistent. But for other people, it's inconsistent, right? You know, the leftists are calling out religion and leftists typically don't like to be aligned with religion, but here they are. They are aligned with it. But I'm going to just go on record here and saying that, it, you know, he's right. Trickle down has failed. It hasn't been trickle down. It's been a flood, an absolute flood. And when people deny this, it just blows me away because the evidence is so overwhelmingly clear that the more that you encourage entrepreneurs to innovate and to create businesses, it creates wealth, it creates jobs. Um, and that 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 creation of wealth cascades throughout the economy and to deny that that doesn't happen is just nonsense. Now, we can talk about how um, how wealth is distributed and there's a lot of 
pieces to that puzzle, but there's no doubt that wealth is created. And there's no doubt that even people at the top, the rich, are going to use their money in ways that's productive. Um, even the rich, when you, you ask people that oppose tax cuts for the rich, um, and, and, and you'll ask them, well, what do you think the rich do with their tax cuts? And usually they'll say, well, they just put it in investments or something. And you're thinking, well, yeah, that's what helps drive the economy. I mean, in fact, when, when the rich get tax cuts, what do they do with it? What do rich people do with their money? Well, they really only do one of four things, as far as I can tell. They either spend it, and people would argue, well, the rich people aren't going to spend very much because they make so much money. How could you possibly spend it all? And there's some logic to that. But still, the rich will spend their money. And they'll buy expensive things, homes and yachts and, you know, expensive vacations and everything else. Um, but the rich will also invest their money. And that's where a great uh, um, that's where a great number of their dollars go. But when they invest in the money, where does that money go? It doesn't go into a black hole. That money, that investment goes into companies. That, that money is then invested in technology, in people. It's invested to expand businesses. It's, it's given to businesses who then in turn are using outsourced vendors and, and paying for equipment and facilities. And that money cascades throughout the economy. It trickles. Actually, no, it doesn't trickle. It's a flood. Okay. And then what else do rich people do with their money? Um, in some cases, they'll save it. And what they'll do is they'll put it in a bank. Well, what do banks do with their money? How do banks make money? They lend it. Okay, so they lend money out in home mortgages, in auto loans, in credit card loans, in um, home equity lines. And that money is used to buy cars and buy houses and hire contractors to remodel kitchens and build decks and repair roofs. Um, it's it's that those loans are used to help businesses expand and to lease equipment and to finance other things in businesses. The money cascades. And then people say, well, yeah, they do put it in the banks, but they put it offshore. They put it in the Cayman Islands where it can't be taxed. Well, yeah, they do in some cases, but they're doing it because the tax rates in America are so onerous. You know, you go through all the trouble of earning that money. They want to protect it. You can't blame them. And people are going to take necessary measures to minimize their tax obligation. You probably do that. I mean, we all know we saw the evidence that Trump's doing it, um, but you do it. I do it. We all try to pay the least amount we can in taxes. But we do agree the system is rigged for certain people. The system is distorted. Um, but in the end, you know, when people are saving their money, even if they're saving it in the Cayman Islands, those banks will still loan the money out. And they may not loan it in America. They're going to be loaning that money in other places because they've got to make money on that deposit that they're already paying interest to, to the depositor. So banks are going to loan out money. So when person when a rich person saves money, that bank will lend it out. And then the fourth thing rich people do, you know, it's, it's, it's spend, it's invest, it's save. And the fourth thing they do is they donate. You know, they'll, they'll be philanthropists and they'll donate to a church or to a university or any number of things in the community or causes they believe in. And in that case, the money, again, cascades throughout the economy. It's not a trickle. It's a flood. And so, um, you know, the, the, the Pope is condemning the whole idea of trickle down and saying that it's a failure. And I'm thinking to myself, no, what are you doing? I mean, 
economically, the evidence is overwhelming that if you if you empower entrepreneurs and incentivize them to generate um, to innovate, to grow businesses and generate wealth, that wealth will cascade through the system. I mean, think about American history. You go back to the 19th century um, before the Industrial Revolution. America is pretty poor. I mean, America was a. Uh, kind of a backwater, uh, originally a backwater colony of the Brit of the British, you know, and, and eventually gained its independence in 1776. Um, we love talking about the Declaration of Independence on this podcast, the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But even in 1776, America was a relatively poor nation. I mean, there's sure there were some aristocrats there, there were some business people, but overall, most people, you know, lived on farms or made enough money just so they could eat that day or the next couple of days. There wasn't a lot of wealth in America. The wealth cr- was created in large sums during the Industrial Revolution in the latter part of the 19th century. Oh, let me, Gabby Dow chiming in, you forgot the fifth thing. I guess we're talking about the four things that the wealthy people do with their money. I said they spend it. They save it, they invest it, and they donate it. Those are the four things. There's a fifth. Um, Gabby says people like Trump pretend to donate to foundations to avoid taxes, but the money circles right back into their pockets, and they are so bad at business, like they are at philanthropy, that they lose the money. Yeah, yeah. We, we talked about that in a few podcasts ago, how Trump is a terrible business person. He tries to create this myth that he's this superior, um, you know, great business person when he's been losing tons of money. I mean, the reason that he doesn't pay very much in taxes is largely because his businesses are losing so much money um, because the businesses don't show a profit and therefore there's no tax to pay. And then, yeah, a lot of times they're using a lot of these um, philanthropies, some cases they're bogus philanthropies and they're, but they're set up in such a way that people are trying to retain what they earn. Um, but still, you know, whether it's ethical or not, it's there in the end, they're still doing four things. They're spending, they're saving, they're investing, or they're donating. Those are the four. Um, now in some cases they may be pretending to donate, but the money comes right back to them. So it's just another way of saving, saving money, which then they will in turn either spend or invest somewhere else. So it ultimately comes down to those four things. Um, but going back to American history, you know, America wasn't very wealthy at all until the Industrial Revolution and the latter part of the 19th century. And then wealth skyrocketed. And why? Why did it skyrocket then? It's because of capitalism, of course. I mean, you could go back and look at the whole history. I mean, not just America since 1776, but go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And you can look up a graph, you know, where people have estimated the GDP per capita worldwide. It's been flat and tiny, tiny GDP per capita worldwide for centuries for millennium. And, you know, it might go up a little bit, you know, when England conquered France and a little bit as money would get switched one way or the other, when another nation would invade and plunder another nation and money was accumulated back then largely by stealing it. It wasn't money wasn't made so much as it was stolen from one another. 
Um, and the average ordinary person, you know, was living in a feudalistic society, living on a farm, barely getting by. Their children largely would perish by the time they got to 10 years old. It was a terrible life. It was a rough life. But it wasn't until capitalism kicked in and the economy boomed and there was a cascade, a flood, not a trickle, a flood of wealth creation that occurred after and during and after the um, Industrial Revolution. We saw the, the, or the, the um, standard of living of the ordinary man went up huge, probably more radically than any other time in human history. And, and then you see that other nations in Asia and China and Southeast Asia, they remain poor all the way through the 20th century. And then once they were, you know, when when Nixon negotiated with um, was it Mao then in 1968, when when Nixon worked with China and opened up the, the world economy with China, they were dirt poor then, too. With the exception, again, of aristocrats or kings or rulers, um, there was like one or two percent of the economy had money, everyone else dirt poor. Once they opened it up and allowed just a little bit of free market capitalism Wealth boomed. You know, we saw cities explode with wealth, not just for the rich, but the middle class. We've seen the poor, you know, abject poverty went from, you know, a massive percentage now to almost zero percent. Abject poverty, like the poorest of the poor, has almost entirely wiped out because of capitalism. And the, what capitalism does is that it creates wealth and that wealth cascades throughout the economy. Now, do some people earn more than others? Yeah. You know, but in the end, people are earning more, but it's condemned and it's condemned by Pope Francis. Um, he's condemning trickle down, which is a common thing that you'll hear our friends on the left say. Um, but and I'm going to get to this in a minute. The, the wealth creation is is obvious. Um, the cascading throughout the economy is utterly obvious, but how it's distributed within the economy, there's distortion there. And that's a legit problem, which we'll talk a little bit about. Um, But yeah, and let's get to that. Let's get to inequality. And Pope Francis said in this article, this AP News article, and I'll share the link. He said, there is little appreciation of the fact that the alleged spillover, and he puts it in quotes, does not resolve the inequality that gives rise to new forms of violence threatening the fabric of society. Well, there is spillover, okay? That, that's, that's unquestionable that there's going to be wealth creation to be spilled over and cascaded throughout the economy. That is, that is going to be true. Now, does it resolve the inequality? Well, no, it doesn't. And there he's right. Um, and I, that's what I want to talk about here, because people right now, you hear a lot of comments about wealth inequality and income inequality and how this is one of the major crises in our nation that we need to solve. And that's what's leading to violence on the streets, whether it's in Portland or, you know, here in America, a lot of the violence is, is more racially motivated with BLM Um you know, in my opinion, rightfully so, we need to have equal rights regardless of skin color. In a lot of ways, I support the BLM movement. There's some angles to it. I'm not necessarily a fan, but the, the underpinnings, the morality of what they're pushing uh, for equal rights for all makes sense. But still, in other parts of the world and even in some parts of America, yeah, there is violence. In some cases, it's done in the name of inequality. But think about this for a moment. 
and I'll say something that's kind of outrageous. Inequality is a wonderful thing. It is. And you might think, how could I say that? How could you say that inequality is a wonderful thing? It's not right that people are not equal. Well, think, think about this. Now, first of all, let's talk about the Declaration of Independence, which I always cite. And it talks about all men are created equal. What does that mean? Does it mean that we really are equal? I mean, look around. There are tall people, short people, athletic people, disabled people, smart people, not so smart people, people that are sick, people that aren't sick, people that are rich, people that are poor, um, people that are of different races, different ethnicities, different skills. Some people can play the piano really well. Some people can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. Other people are excellent doctors and surgeons that save people's lives. We are not equal. Now, when the, when, in the Declaration of Independence, when it says all men are created equal, what does that mean? Well, for, first of all, it doesn't mean just males. <laughs> all men are created equal is all humans are created equal. Men in that term of men and women. And I know that's kind of a sticky point for some people that don't see that. But I, I would hope that reasonable people would understand that men in that, con, in that frame of, of, of reference is really for humans. But we are not equal. We're created equal. Now, what does that mean? Now, I think if you're religious, that probably means that you think we're all equal in the eyes of God. You know, that we're all born innocents and we all um, have the ability to come before God, you know, in our judgment day and be judged equally. But at the secular level, in, 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 in our actual life, it really means sort of the same thing, right? It means that we should all be judged equally, that we should all be equal under the law. And that was reinforced, I think, was it the 14th Amendment, I think, talked about that. Um, so we, when equality is important from that perspective. We should be equal under the law. I hope most people would agree with that. Now, there is a proposition on the California ballot that wants to have inequality before the law that different people should be judged differently depending on their gender or their race or their sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. That's I came out and I oppose that in the propositions because I think people specifically by the government should be treated equally under the law. But beyond the scope of that inequality is a wonderful thing because we all are different. We all have different interests and different pursuits. Some people want to be an artist some people want to be a pilot. Some people want to own businesses. Some people want to be the mayor of Poway or San Diego. Um, some people want to go into all, some people want to be athletes. Some people want to be professional musicians. We all pursue different interests. And those different interests are going to produce different levels of income, depending on the value that we offer to the people that patronize us to, on the, the value that we offer when we exchange and trade with others. So as a result, some people are going to earn more than others. Um, I talked about my, I went to my dental appointment last week, the, the day of the debate made it for a terrible day um, going to the dentist and getting beat up there and then going and watching that horrible debate. But a dentist makes more money than me. That's Okay. That's good. We, I am unequal with my dentist when it comes to income and, and possibly when it comes to wealth. But that's good because different people are getting paid differently based on the way the marketplace works. 
So in a lot of ways, inequality is a feature, not a bug, but a feature of freedom. It's a feature of liberty. Um, Steve Dow goes on to say here in the, in the live stream, I think this is where you are going, but I believe we should be striving for equal opportunity, not expecting equal results. We should be striving for everyone to have an equal chance. Well, man, that sounds good, doesn't it, Steve? That we should, I don't think, you know, first of all, if we had equality of outcome, that wouldn't be good, would it? <laughs> of course not. You know, we would all be doing all these different pursuits, offering all these different levels of value to our customers and our community and the people we engage with. But then we all come out the end, we all making the same amount of money every year. I mean, that's equality of income and equality of wealth. So we obviously, I don't think anyone wants that except for like the most hardcore communist. But then people will say, well, we should have equality of opportunity. And again, that sounds good, doesn't it? But how do you do that? I mean, because again, we're, I mean, Take like LeBron James. We're watching the NBA finals right now. It's a Lakers and the Heat. And LeBron James is, you know, probably the best basketball player on the planet. If I were to have a one-on-one basketball game with LeBron James, how could I have equal opportunity to win that game? How is that possible? He is bigger than me. He is stronger than me. He is more skilled than me. He has been given gifts that I couldn't possibly ever attain. I mean, I'd be lucky to get one shot off him, even just to get it beyond his his arms that would block it. And every time he'd have the ball, he'd just go right down the lane and slam dunk it in my face. Or if he was feeling uh, like a little frisky, he'd shoot some distance three-pointers and sink them all. I would have no chance. How would I ever have equality of opportunity in a basketball game with LeBron James. How? Well, the only way I can think of is if we cut LeBron James' legs off. And even then, he would be able to shoot the ball better than me. And he might even still be taller than me. <laughs> um, but then you, you'd have to essentially damage LeBron James to create a situation where there was equality of opportunity. It's not possible without harming other people. So, um, you know, Steve goes on to say, I think education is the key. True. Yeah. Education is important. No question, but there is always going to be, a, um, it's, there's always going to be a differences in education, depending on when pe- where people are going to school. Um, there's going to be differences in all sorts of things. Like if you want to have equality of opportunity, how do you do that when, when like you, you're born into a wealthy family and that wealthy family, never mind the money they have, but they've got all these amazing contacts. They can get on the phone and call up a CEO of a large corporation and get you a good job. How do you equalize that? Um, if you are, like I said, born with just unbelievable talents in science or in the arts, some people are just naturally gifted at certain things. How do you have equally equality of opportunity in those cases? You can't do it. it. It's just not possible. The only way to really equalize it is if you tear some down and artificially prop others up. And I don't think that's right. I mean, I think if we want to help others that are in need, let's do it. But yeah, education is the key. I think we agree. But what's interesting is, is that even with education, there are some people that are trapped 
in terrible schools that were had the misfortune of being born into a poor family, happen to live in a zip code that happens to have a very weak public education system. And they don't have the means to attend a better school elsewhere, whether it's a better public school, a better government school elsewhere, or a better private school elsewhere. And that private school may be religious or secular. But they're denied that. They're denied it by the same people that claim that they want to have, that are upset about income and wealth inequality. Um, It's typically our friends on the left that are in opposition to school vouchers that ultimately end up doing great damage and trap people in poverty. And I think when you talk about this whole notion of this trickle down fail, is there inequality? The inequality itself, like the actual Delta, like if you look at, however much my dentist makes a year and however much I make a year, the difference, that delta, that number really is meaningless. That doesn't matter. Now, you could say that for some people that are really, really rich, the system is rigged to protect their wealth, that they're the ones that get bailed out in um, and far greater amounts during this COVID crisis than others. They're the ones that have regulations set up that make competition illegal. Like if they're you know, a CEO of big pharma, they get the government to prevent drugs from being uh, renegotiated for price or they get the government to block the imports of medicine from other countries, um, or they get uh, the government to create all these occupational licenses that make it so much difficult for um, you know, young self-starters to go into many, uh, many career choices. They create barriers for people to earn wealth, and in, as a result, it protects the wealth at the top. That's legit. That's a problem. And at the same time, There are legitimate problems on the bottom end. There are legitimate problems where people are trapped in poverty. Um, The school vouchers is one example. In the last podcast, I talked about the bail system where poor people that don't have the money to post bail, even if they're innocent, they're thrown in jail. They may not have a trial for two weeks, three weeks, three months. Who knows? And during that time, they lost their job. They can't pay the rent and they go down into the cycle of poverty and God forbid they get thrown in jail. Then suddenly you have a single parent raising children and that single parent's got to have multiple jobs to raise the children. And then they get on government assistance and it creates this cyclical multi-generational case of government dependence and poverty. There are a lot of other cases, the war on drugs, the criminal injustice system that we have, the the fines, the fines can be excessive. You know, here in California, you you know, red light cameras, which, you know, we can discuss the, the pros and cons of those. But um, in, in California, you know, the ticket is like 250, 500 bucks. In other states, it's a lot less. Imagine if you're really poor, you're living paycheck to paycheck, you make a mistake, you run a red light, you get caught with a camera, missed it by a millisecond. You get a $500 fine to, and you have to pay it and you can't pay it. Then what happens? Then when you're driving and you get pulled over for something else, they, um, they, they seize your car, they um, revoke your license, and now you can't get to work. And now not only couldn't you pay that $500 bill, now you can't pay your rent. And now you'll never be able to get your car out of hock you know, from uh, the, the towing company that's got it at a, at a repo yard. So you're screwed. The system is, in a lot of ways, 
traps people in poverty. That's a legitimate problem. On the other side, the system protects the wealth at the top. That's a legitimate problem. But the fact that there's inequality of income and inequality of wealth, I think, is a wonderful thing because we're all different. We all pursue different things in life. And each of those things we pursue pay in different amounts. There are some people that have a love and passion for being an artist, and they know it's not going to pay much, but they want to live that lifestyle. They're good with it. There are other people that, for whatever reason, find themselves in very lucrative careers. In some cases, perhaps they pursued it. Other cases, maybe they fell into it. Um, But there's a lot of people that became very wealthy. Remember during the dot-com bubble about 20 years ago. Um, But still, people earn different amounts of money. That's a good thing because the the alternative is we all earn the same. And I don't think anyone wants that. So, um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the Pope was decrying, um, inequality and saying that was a terrible problem. Well, I don't think inequality is the problem. I think it's the system that traps people at the bottom and rewards people at the top. That's the problem. And I think we have to be, we have to treat those differently, but what's also interesting and I'm kind of getting near the end here. Um, and thanks for hanging with me. I didn't realize I was going to go this long on all of this, but there's just so much here in this article about Pope Francis condemning, um, capitalism and, and in other cases condemning um, just war and a lot of other things, which is interesting. But think about authoritarianism and the church and listen to this. So this is from Pope Francis. The fragility of world systems in the face of the pandemic, of the COVID pandemic, has demonstrated that not everything can be resolved by market freedom. It is imperative to have a proactive economic policy directed at promoting an economy that favors productive diversity and business creativity, makes it possible for jobs to be created and not cut. That's a really interesting comment, too. So can the market can market freedom cure every problem? Well, no, it can't. There is no utopia. Um, the central planners, you know, running the economy from Washington, D.C., pushing the buttons and pulling the levers, they can't solve all the problems either. They can't resolve everything. They can't make the COVID crisis work either. Um, there is no perfect system. Um, but it is interesting that the, the Pope really wants more government authoritarianism, wants more government control and more central planning. And of course, because for for centuries, you know, since the, the time of Christ, the Pope has been an authority figure. The Pope has been in many cases like a king. And then in other cases, he's been, you know, in many people's eyes on par with leaders of their country. That's why I would go into my relatives' homes in San Francisco and I would see the Pope and the president side by side, photos of the two. Um, the Pope is an authority figure by definition. So it makes sense that the Pope is going to be against, you know, freedom of individuals to resolve issues. They're going to want a central planning authoritarian approach. Um, and he wants a system where it's possible for jobs to be created, not cut. Well, the central planning of our federal government resulted in job cuts. Businesses were declared illegal. Businesses were forcibly shut down because the government 
forced the job cuts. And it's interesting, too, because people will blame capitalism. They'll, they'll look at the COVID crisis and they'll say, see, capitalism doesn't work. But the government was shutting businesses down. Of course, it's not going to work. Of course, the economy is going to go into the tank. Now, they've been able to prop it up with, you know, smoke screens and voodoo and a house of cards to keep the economy going by creating money out of thin air and, and, and trying to distribute it. But of course they distribute it in distorted fashions that rewards the high end. That's why president Bush has a $500 billion slush fund that he can hand out to anyone he wants. That's why corporations were getting a lion's share of these bailout dollars. In some cases they didn't need it or deserve it. Um, so it's interesting that people will condemn capitalism when at the same time they're cutting the legs out of capitalism to really do what it's supposed to do. Um, so, uh, but you know, the church and authoritarianism are always going to be very much aligned. And so whether it's either from an economic perspective that they want to have more central planning, which obviously Pope Francis wants, um, but the, the church has always been anti-individual rights. They've always been against the individual and more for authority over people. I mean, go back to the, the dark ages. I mean, gee whiz. I mean, after the fall of Rome and, and religion was the dominant force in, in civilization and in Western culture and in Europe, um, you know, the rights of the individuals were oppressed in the name of religion. That's why there was such abject poverty during that time. It, it wasn't until we got beyond religion with re the Renaissance and people could think and use reason and use science that we were able to escape that. And then eventually start to be able to create an economy that started to build wealth. But it wasn't until really about 1776. Interesting date in history, a year in history. Two things happened. One of them is obvious, right? That's the creation of America, a nation that was founded on what I believe is a moral um, and, and fundamental morality, a fundamental philosophy of individual rights, that we have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At the time, that is probably the only nation that ever existed that was founded on a morality or a philosophy. And that notion of individual rights of individualism free to pursue their own happiness is ultimately what gave fuel to the economy to allow capitalism to work. And we eventually began to see that, you know, about a hundred years later with the industrial revolution is when it really took hold because it takes a while for those ideas to permeate society. But the other interesting thing that happened in 1776 was when Adam Smith produced the book, the wealth of nations. And that, in many ways, articulated a lot of these concepts. Now, the wealth of nations isn't a perfect, um, you know, it's not a perfect uh, model, but it's darn close. It's definitely pointing us in the right direction and got people to really understand and accept the fundamental principles of capitalism. But yeah, I mean, like, it's just interesting when you look at the history of the church, and this is where I have a lot of my misgivings. Um, you know, the Puritanism of the church. Now, granted, that was more the Protestants than the Catholics, but the, the, the resistance to science. I remember it was, it wasn't, was it in the 1960s, I think, when the Pope finally admitted that the earth was round and rotated around the sun? I think it was in the 1960s. Like, 
what is that, 400 years after Galileo or 500 years? I don't, when did Galileo discover that? It was something like that. Like, man, you know, so the church is just, it's, it's a difficult thing because I know people have faith and I respect that faith and, and that faith guides them and it gives them a certain morality. But there's so many other things surrounding the church that are worthy of criticism. And it's just difficult to reconcile that. And as I got older and smarter and learned things, I had trouble reconciling those issues and it's affected the way that I see religion. So it's interesting. Um, And then there's one other comment here, and this is from the Pope. And he says, um, you know, when he's condemning um, capitalism and trickle down and everything else, he says, and as an outgrowth of that, Francis rejected the concept of an absolute right to property for individuals. And he said that in his, in his book, he opposes the idea of property rights. So again, this is, this is huge. This is a big issue because if people don't have the right to property, then it gives justification for other people to take it away. Now I'm of the belief that, you know, we talk about inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When they drafted that, they wanted to include the word property in there. Because it rightfully belonged. If you go back to the Age of Enlightenment and all of those philosophers of the day, they were all about life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. But the founders were careful to not include that because they thought it would provide some form of justification of slavery. So they left it out. Um, But still, if we have a right to our own life, an inalienable right to our own life, that means our life is ours to live, be all that you can be, flourish in life, go out there and live it. Well, you, in order to do that, you have to have a right to property because you're going to earn things as you go up. And those things you're going to use to trade, to feed yourself, to house yourself, to close yourself. So property, I don't mean necessarily just real estate, but property in general, things that you buy or accumulate are necessary Most, many of them, not obviously not all of the things, but many of them are necessary in order to live your life. But the Pope is condemning the absolute right to property for individuals. So maybe he's, maybe he's criticizing real estate land. And there are some people that think we don't have an absolute right to own land. It's always an interesting concept because if we didn't have a right to own land, then someone could build a house right next door to you, (laughs) like adjacent to your home. People could yank out your garden in your backyard and build there against your will. You know, it's righteous and fair that we're able to buy property and we can manage it. And frankly, it's proven that if we do it that way, we're going to have more, uh, we're going to have better outcomes, it's interesting. There's the whole story about the pilgrims and the pilgrims again, were Puritans. Uh, the pilgrims were Christians and the Puritans had that same um, fundamental moral guidance that Christians have that socialists have, that it's about the collective and about the group. And they went about creating farms for the group, but those farms failed largely because some people just didn't put in the work, but then they were able to enjoy the benefits and eventually less and less people did the work and eventually the farms failed. And it wasn't until the pilgrims created individual plots of land that each person managed 
that then people were productive for their own sake. And then we saw those farms flourish. So it's, it's, it's interesting, but still the Pope condemns private property, which is just amazing. So anyways, um, and then the final quote that I'll share, which was interesting from this article, and this is one I liked, sort of liked. And um, he says, much of the new encyclical repeats, you know, the encyclical or his writings, repeats Francis's well-known preaching about the need to welcome and value migrants and his rejection of nationalistic isolationist policies of many of today's political leaders. Well, I, I love that. I, I love the fact that he's pro-immigration. Um, I'm very pro-immigration. I'm pro-legal immigration. I'm pro-illegal immigration. I think legal immigration should be made to be faster, cheaper, um, easier, so that there's less illegals. I think if you have a right to your own life, then you should have a right to to move and to travel. And as long as you're, you know, being fair and responsible with the people around you, that's legit. Um, I like that he is a fav- is favoring migration. That makes a lot of sense. My ancestors migrated here from Ireland, you know, during you know the time between the Civil War and World War One is when they arrived here. Like so many um, Americans, their ancestors came here during that time frame. They were migrants. So I love that he promotes um, immigration. His rejection of nationalistic isolationist policies. It's funny that the term isolationism is a completely distorted term. You know, I, I'm a I was a fan of Ron Paul when he was running for president, and people would call him an isolationist, which was completely wrong. I mean, an isolationism is like Japan. Um, in the early part of the 19th century and before, where people weren't allowed to trade with others outside of Japan. There was no migration in or out of Japan. It was a closed system. That's isolationism. But now in a global economy, we've got businesses, I mean, trading from various nations, trading with each other. You know, again, pre-COVID, we have tourism, we have all kinds of integration and trade and cooperation amongst nations. That's not isolationism. But when Ron Paul was talking about having a non-interventionist foreign policy, not to go out to Iraq and all these other nations and create these BS wars, he was accused of being an isolationist. When he wanted more trade, more term, tourism, more diplomacy, more more discussion and cooperation amongst nations, so the term isolation is completely distorted. Um, the Pope opposes nationalist isolationist policies. Ah, great, I agree with that. But the Pope, at the same time, is also condemning war. So would the Pope be aligned with Ron Paul on that? Maybe. I don't know. So um, if you want to continue the conversation, please reach out to me on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, I. And I hope you enjoyed this. This is a little bit different than a lot of the other podcasts I've done. I'm kind of talking religion and economy, and that's where it gets kind of, you know, touchy for people to talk about religion. They say never discuss religion and politics at the dinner table. I discuss both. But that's what makes the most interesting discussions. So, you know, I, I like talking about politics, but I like talking more about ideas. I love this. And I love that Steve and Gabby Dow were kind enough to chime in on the podcast and share their thoughts and opinions. This is, I'd love to have a long form conversation with a guest to go deep, deep, deep down this rabbit hole about religion and capitalism and socialism. To me, it's a very fascinating topic. So if you want to reach out to me, you can, you can find me on social media. 
My uh, Facebook page is the John Riley Project. I have the John Riley Project Insiders Group, which is a special group, a smaller group. We have a little bit of more intimate discussions. You're invited. You got to answer a few questions to get in, but I let everyone in. Um, you can also reach out to me on Twitter at John Riley Poway, and I'm always talking Padres and usually politics there. Okay, so here's my final quote, and this is a really, really good quote. And there was a time probably about – Oh, eight years ago or so, where I was just binge watching, not Netflix. I was binge watching on YouTube every piece of video I could find on Milton Friedman. <laughs> and for some people, you say Milton Friedman and people, some people are like big thumbs up. And there's other people that are just hair on fire, don't like Milton Friedman. And of course, he was an economist um, and he won the Nobel uh, uh, Prize for economics. Um, but he was a very outspoken person about free markets and about capitalism and was really popular in the late 60s, the 70s, and into the early 80s. You saw him on TV a lot. He had a series on PBS called Free to Choose. In fact, I've got this book right here. Here it is, Free to Choose by Milton Friedman. This is a really good book. Um, but there's some really good um, discussions he had on the Donahue show from the late 70s. Remember Phil Donahue? And um, there, was a, there was a point in that where Phil Donahue was just – Exasperated, he goes. Well, don't don't you have a problem? There's so much greed in society, and it's just that people are using greed to rig the system for them. And there's this insatiable appetite for money. It's just ruled by greed, and you hear a lot of that today. But Phil Donahue was saying that on his show, and and he responded. Uh, Milton Friedman responded, and he said, "Well, first of all, tell me, is there a society that you you know that doesn't?" run on greed. You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Because of course, none of us are greedy. <laughs> the other fellow, he's the one that's greedy. The world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great, the great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty that you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by the free enterprise system. Wow. I mean, that was just fantastic. And so he made this quote like in the late 1970s. And I remember back then, China was still dirt poor and Southeast Asia and India were still dirt poor. But then those societies began to embrace more capitalism, more free markets. And what happened? China has developed tremendous amounts of wealth. That's why now they have an army and a Navy and an Air Force that's competitive with America. That's why they're putting men on the moon. You know, they've got a space program. Um, India has generated huge amounts of wealth. Um, Southeast Asia, you know, Vietnam and and well, Hong Kong, especially 
up until recently. Now Hong Kong has been taken over, but Hong Kong embraced capitalism and free markets and produced massive amounts of wealth and greatly increased the quality of life of the ordinary person. And so we saw that in China and abject poverty around the world is in steep, steep decline. And the nations where you see the, the most abject poverty are in those nations that resist capitalism and resist free markets. So when the Pope comes out with this article and says, and where's the, the market capitalism has failed in the pandemic and needs reform. I'm thinking, Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Capitalism is what we need. The reason that capitalism has been failing is because the government has been shutting it down. And a lot of the other failures in the system where the poor are trapped in poverty and the rich have their wealth protected, that's not free markets. And capitalism is about free markets. Capitalism is about private property, but the wealthy are getting taxpayer dollars. And the system's distorted and rigged. That's not free trade, free markets. So capitalism is often blamed when capitalism really is the solution. So I leave it with you there. This is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 172. We've touched on a lot here. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with me the whole time. Really appreciate it. And we'll be back at you really soon. See you later, friends. Bye-bye.